In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard Welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks, as always, for sticking me in your ear. We are off on a wild paranormal adventure on this episode. Graham Phillips is a British author. He's also worked as a reporter for BBC Radio. He's the author of co- or co-author of a number of books, including The Green Stone, Uh, The Eye of Fire, King Arthur, The True Story, The Shakespeare Conspiracy, Robin Hood, The Man Behind the Myth, uh, The Search for the Grail, um, The Marian Conspiracy, The Moses Legacy, The Templars and the Ark of the Covenant, Merlin and the Discovery of Avalon in the New World, The End of Eden, uh, Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, and his latest, co-authored by Jody Russell, is called Strange Fate, An Extraordinary True Story of paranormal discovery graham phillips welcome to strange planet how are you very well thank you and thank you for having me on let's begin with this remarkable artifact which is at the heart of the story it's uh the heart of the rose just uh, describe sort of physically what this this heart of the rose artifact is well it's a small stone it's about two inches long two inches wide and about three quarters of an inch thick made from a rose quartz and it's shaped into the shape of a heart um in legend it was supposedly made by an ancient greek goddess but somehow it came to britain where the celts possessed it and in the time that uh, King Arthur is said to have lived, which is around 500 AD, after the Romans left Britain, um, it ended up with the last of the Druid priestesses. There was The Druids were the Celtic um, priesthood. Um, they were kind of suppressed by the Romans, but by the time the Romans left, Christianity was taking over. So the last of them pretty much um, w- were gone. And the last of these priestesses, whose name was Morgana, who seemed to have been behind the legend 
of Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's sister and sorceress in the King Arthur story. Um, it ended up supposedly with her and it was buried. We didn't know this at the time when we started to, to, to research for the book, but it was supposed to be buried in her tomb, which was a burial mound not far from the centre of England in moorland called the Peak District. Um, and there it was hidden uh, in her tomb when she died in the early 500s. And it was later sought and found by a group that came from nearby called the Order of Meaniah, who were a mystical society. What what properties or um uh I mean what are the legends associated with the heart of the rose? What did it have, I don't know, supernatural qualities? Yeah, it was said to have the power to influence fate, fortune, and well, change the future in some way. It was um the the what the, the Romans called the woman who created it Fortuna, from where the name Fortune comes from. And so it's basically said to be able to influence fortune. So it was a pretty highly sought-after artifact. And uh as you as you uh, mentioned, it is discovered uh by this occult society, the Order of Meaniya, uh in the Moors of, of England. Um, and well, tell tell us a little bit about this occult uh, secret society, if you will. Well, it basically, it was in some ways no different to many other secret societies of people that wrote that um, were founded in the second half of the nineteenth century. It's known as the Gothic revival or the occult revival because there suddenly became an interest in spiritualism. Started then, mm -hmm. there were many other occult groups being founded. The, there was psychic research got going, people serious investigating what ghosts and paranormal phenomena might be. And during this period, um, the, there were quite a few of these groups. But this order of Meaniya was the first of these groups, or certainly one of the first, that was founded in the early 1850s. Now, they had their headquarters at a big Victorian mansion called Bidolf Grange, which is only a couple of miles from where this tomb was. And the fact that this tomb was actually on their property, on the Bidolf estate, the people who owned the property, a family called the Batemans, um, who were very rich industrialists, and their neighbours, who were close friends, and also in um, they were in partnership in various businesses, called the Heaths, they were at the centre of this group. And um, but basically, it's, it, I, mean, I suppose in some ways it was no different from other groups at the time. They went in search of things like the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant, you name it, King Arthur's Excalibur, any of these famous artefacts they went in search of. Now, most of you have never heard of the Heart of the Rose today, but back in the 19th century, it was pretty popular, pretty famous. It was actually made famous by Bram Stoker, the man who created Dracula's story. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the way it was found, it's what makes the order of me and I have so different from the other groups, because the person who found it was the daughter of one of these families, the Heath family who lived not far away from Bidolf Grange, by a girl called Mary Ann Heath. Mary was only seven and a half when she found it. Now, apparently, according to all uh, accounts, she was just a normal little girl. And they decided, the families, to start doing an archaeological dig at this big burial mound where Morgana was supposed to be buried. Um, the, the person doing the dig was a professional archaeologist. He was the cousin of uh, James Bateman, the man who owned Bidolf Grange. So it was all very proper. And while they were all there, uh, it was just the, the families were there, the, the children were playing around the area. Mary was one of them. And just as they kind of opened up the, uh, the entrance to this tomb, it was a big mound about 40 feet across, 10 feet high. They, they dug into it and she suddenly went and crawled inside. And they obviously were saying, Mary, Mary, come out, come out. When she came out, 
the, all the stories say, all the accounts at the time say, she came out with extraordinary powers. She came out being what we would today call psychic. Um, she started telling people that uh, things about themselves she couldn't have possibly known. But what she said was when she went into this little, she crawled through this opening into this hillock. When she got inside, there was a burial chamber. She said that in there she found this stone and it did match exactly what the heart of the rose was supposed to look like. It was all covered in dirt, but when they cleaned it up, it was what they hoped to find. So then, I mean, people were saying she can't suddenly be psychic. You know, how can she, you know, some people were saying, oh, she's just making lucky guesses when she tells people about themselves. But then she said, all right, I'll prove it. If you go to about two miles south of where Bidolf Grange is, there's an old ruined um, chapel. If you dig in a particular place and she showed them where to do it under the earth you will find that there's a, a slab there and if you have it removed you'll find an underground crypt with some amazing things in it and she was right they actually found a lot of knights templar um gravestones there plus various lead boxes and inside apparently were old documents about the occult and mysteries and all those sort of things dating back to the middle ages and well this firstly made mary heath really quite sort of sought after by everybody i mean how did she suddenly get these powers and secondly it was what started the group because once she'd been able to um find this heart of the rose which they believed could change fate and they'd found all these uh boxes full of ancient occult texts that's what made them decide let's get the order of me and i going they call it the order of me and i because well the bottom line is me and i is an anagram for i am one they believe that all sorts of different things of the past occult m magic m magic from ancient egypt greece rome it was all basically different paths to the same thing so that's how the group got going a remarkable uh story uh did the heaths and the batemans did they buy their property uh because they believed it was in proximity of you know the remains of morgana and perhaps the the tomb where they would find the heart of the stone or was it just happenstance it was just happenstance. They had nothing to do with the occult before this. Um, it was the Batemans that owned it first. In eighteen sort of say eighteen seventy, I think it was the 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 Batemans sold it to the Heaths because they were running out of money. Um, but the, the the original them going there was seemingly completely coincidental, or was it? Was some higher force driving them? But certainly, once they got there, they realised there was a lot of sacred places on their land i mean first of all there was this tomb then there was this old chapel that had belonged to the knights templars and then you'd got the fact that there were other ancient monuments like small stone circles uh, other mounds and things all around where they were building this they i mean they built this house there was just virtually nothing there beforehand and they found um, that there was quite a lot of these ancient sacred Celtic and pre-Celtic sites on their land. And what was amazing is that what they decided to do was to start building new shrines on the location of where these older um, sacred sites were. And they didn't, remember I said that they tended to believe, presumably either because of what little Mary had told them in her psychic state, or what they discovered in these um, various documents they found in this crypt, they believe that the that different forms of ancient mysticism were all paths to the same thing. They bought, they built a Roman temple under the house, and erected a statue of this woman I was called, saying called Fortuna. There, I said she was a goddess. She wasn't so much as a goddess; she was more of a I don't know, a, a demigod, a human with godlike powers. The ancient Greeks called her Omphale, but they called her uh, Fortuna. So they built this uh, Roman temple to her underneath the, the, the Grange itself. They um, And then another site there, they built a, um, a, a, a mock Egyptian tomb 
um, that was pretty much, you know, it looks pretty much like an Egyptian tomb when you go in. It's quite sizable. They also built a, tr a Chinese sanctuary, a pagoda, and other pools and, uh, um, and things around that. And then they built a Celtic sanctuary, which consisted of a, um, a sacred spring and little rivers and kind of like a recreated tomb. So they were building all these things, but they were all supposed to have had the same purpose. There was Fortuna in one. In the one that's the, the Egyptian temple, they had a, a godlike being called uh, the Ape of Thoth or Arne, he is supposed to have been the lord of fate and fortune in ancient Egypt. Uh, so he's the same thing, but for Egypt, what right. fortune is to the Romans. In the Chinese temple, they had a statue of um, the, what somebody called the Lady of the Moon in Chinese mythology. Her name is, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Chang'e. Um, and, in, and, and, so she, and she is in charge in the in the um, ancient, ancient Chinese tradition, in charge of fate, fortune, and destiny, and they did something similar in the Celtic shrine. Um, there was a, an ancient uh, lady or semi uh, or demigoddess called Br Bride or Brigitta, and they had a statue to her. So it seems that they built four separate shrines on the land all for somehow influencing fate and fortune. The uh, the Heath family then, and the, the order of Mianaya that was in possession of the Heart of the Rose, uh, what did they do with it? And, and I mean, were people coming, flocking to the mansion on the moors to, to, uh, to visit this uh, artifact and the various monuments? Yeah, quite a few famous people got involved in this. Um, there was people that, uh, if anybody knows much about occult history, there's a woman called Florence Farr, who was a famous actress and also a member of another famous occult group called the Golden Dawn. She became part of it. I, I mentioned Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula. He got involved. There was a lot of other famous people, plus primarily a lot of pre-Raphaelite painters. They were the kind of bohemian hippies of the day. And there were people like um, Gabriel Rossetti was involved and uh, a man called Edward uh, Byrne-Jones. They're quite well-known painters. They became involved in this. So it became a kind of society thing, really. I mean, it had to be because anybody else had to work and they hadn't got the, hadn't got the time to get involved in all this kind of stuff. But um, we, we did very little i mean we had jody and i had to put together the whole thing like a massive jigsaw puzzle because the problem was in 1897 or at least that's what we thought at first in 1897 there was a fire that engulfed Bidolf grange and nearly every document associated with this plus family correspondence was destroyed in the fire so, so little is known. It's known how it started, but what they actually did and whether they were successful in whatever they intended to do and any weird things that happened to them, we, we couldn't find any evidence for this because it had all been destroyed. So our quest really started with the search for, well, what did the Order of Me and I do and were they successful? And when you say were they successful, do you... I mean to say that they intended to use the heart of the stone to change history, change the nature of reality? Well, it seems it. I, we, it didn't take us too long to discover what they wanted to do. Most of the people involved in the group were women. And they were also some of the first feminists, the beginning of what they call first wave feminism, which started in the 1850s. In fact, in one of them, I mean, the stone was found in 1851 on May the 4th, actually, is this precise date. The group got going shortly after that. At that very time, one of the people involved with the group, um, a woman called Bobra Beauchamp, she actually started the first feminist magazine. And she, she started really um, working towards uh, women's rights. So did Maria Bateman, who, whose husband owned the property, and a lot of these people were all feminists. Now, 
going back then, women had, and this is in the most advanced Western countries, had absolutely no rights at all, no matter how rich they were. They they went, didn't went allowed to inherit property, to own their own property, to start or run businesses. Um, they were pretty much the the they themselves were the property of their husbands, fathers, brother, or or or, or some sort of guardian. And they had absolutely no rights. Now, they were obviously, on the one hand, working towards this. They started groups off. They started magazines and things like this. And uh, it started to have an effect. Uh, the people began to copy them in the United States and in places like and elsewhere in the British Empire, places like Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere in Europe. So it started to work. But for any rights to really change, it meant that men who were in parliament or in Congress or ruling the various countries throughout the world had to pass legislation to allow women to have rights. How are you going to persuade them to do this? And this is where I think their thinking is they bring in the sort of mystical side. If we can change the minds of certain men, enlighten them to some degree enough to vote through changes then maybe it, we, 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 we can maybe we can make this work. And what's astonishing within a couple of decades, women throughout a lot of Western countries started getting all sorts of rights they'd never had before. They're allowed to own property, allowed to start businesses, allowed to inherit and, and, and so forth. So maybe it was just a complete fluke, but men in power started to agree with them. And that surely can't just have been through these magazines and these little groups that were going, it it makes me think that maybe they did influence fate in some way for the better. So the heart of the rose disappears. Uh, does is it is it as a result of the fire that we we lose track of this artifact? What happened to it? Well, when Sophia took place uh, in the late eighteen nineties. The, the groups disbanded. I think a lot of what they'd achieved, they hadn't got the rights to vote by this time. That kind of came during the First World War. But so many of these other um, you know, rights they had achieved. So maybe they thought it was time to stop. Maybe they were going to, you know, getting a bit old by this point. I mean, being somewhere at the age of 70, which most of these women that wear by this time, was pretty old in those times. I mean, I'm 70 now. I don't consider myself to be that old, really. But back then, it, it was like being you know, close to 100 or something. But So maybe this is why it stopped. But the final thing was there was a fire. The house was severely damaged. Um, and uh, the group stopped. Now, they had this Heart of the Rose. We discovered that uh, a couple of the memorial pamphlet um, that basically was in memory of one of these people in the group. In fact, Mary Heath, a little girl, that when she grew up, she actually became the head of the group for a while. So it was a 25-year memorial service for her. And in the, this little private paper that was published up, or pamphlet, if you like, uh, programme, it basically set, talks about the Heart of the Rose being hidden by one of them and that, she, that this was hidden and... Um, it basically seemed to suggest there were clues that had been left to lead to it for someone who maybe should find it in the future. Now, the person who hid this, eventually we discovered, was a quite a famous artist, an artist model by the name of Jane Morris. She was married to the William Morris, who made famous wallpaper. Um, Jane Morris was an astonishing girl. I mean, she she was born into a very poor family. She 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 self educated. Uh, you know, she educated herself. She became an accomplished pianist. She could speak five languages. She could pass in high society. In fact, so um, famous did she become that um, the uh, the playwright um, George Bernard Shaw based the character for. Um, Pygmalion on her, which is what's known as My Fair Lady on the stage. So right. she is the Eliza Doolittle, My Fair Lady. She was the one who is supposed to have hidden it and left clues. Ah, okay. So this is where you and your co-author Jody Russell, I guess, decide you want to 
discover the the the, the new location of the heart of the rose. First of all, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your co-author. Okay, well, Jody and myself have been researching quite a lot of other mysteries together over the years. She comes from the state; she lives in LA. I'm from Central England, which might be fairly obvious as all my research is around here, um, in a place called Birmingham. Jody comes from LA, and we got to know each other years ago while investigating. She was interested in the Robin Hood legend. I'd just written a book about it. We started corresponding. Uh, that was before the days of the internet. Um, she came over. We investigated that. We were also involved in, the, you mentioned earlier about the book, The Search for the Ark of the Covenant. We were both involved with that story. So we'd done quite a lot of things together. And she used to come to, to England quite often for a bit of a holiday. And, um, you know, I'd normally um, take her to various sites about historical mysteries that I was looking into. And I mentioned to her about this, the reason being because the part that, that this place that used to be a private home and, and its grounds had been reopened to the public and restored to its former glory. And um, it was owned um, by uh, the, the National Trust, which is a British organisation that refurbishes and opens old stately homes to the public. She came over. I said it had been reopened. There was places in, in the gardens I'd love her to see. Would she like to come and see it? So she came over for that reason. I told her about this Heart of the Rose. It's something I've been looking into for years. She said, why don't we go in search of it? And that's how our adventure started. We'll pick up on that point on the other side. Graham Phillips is co-author of Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery in search of the artifact, the heart of the rose, when Strange Planet returns right after this timeout. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we are back with Graham Phillips, British author, former BBC radio reporter and founding editor of Strange Phenomena magazine. That's going back to uh, 1979. We're talking about his new book, co-authored with Jody Russell called Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery. Um, so take me, sort of walk us through it as you as you and Jody begin your um research and your uh, attempt to rediscover the location of the heart of the stone artifact uh this takes you back to the mansion i'm presuming what did, what what did you see what did you feel when you were on the grounds well start off with nothing really i took jody around i showed her the, the location and uh, i said you know why don't we go to the the tomb which is only a couple of miles away where this Heart of the Rose Stone was discovered by little Mary Heath when she was seven years old. Um, so we went there. Now, since the time um, that Mary Heath was alive, since the mid-1800s, the place has been completely ransacked. There is no mound anymore. All there is is a kind of a, a central burial chamber, a stone chamber, which is about, I don't know, 20 feet long, six feet wide, about five or six feet high with no roof to it, but it's made up of stones. You can see that it was once a burial chamber. There's a couple of big stones standing nearby. So it, it's still worth seeing, um, and it's and you can just go there. It's on kind of public land. Um, so we went to have a look at this, um, and I've been, I'd been there before and nothing interesting had happened, and I hadn't come up with any new, any new insights. But while we were there, and it was literally only within minutes of us arriving there, it had been a perfectly nice day with sunshine. And suddenly the rain started pouring. There was this massive cloud right over us. It poured, it thundered, it lightninged. If you can, lightninged, or it did lightning. There was thunder and lightning. And I mean, I, I know everybody knows Britain for its bad weather, but that's just drizzly rain. The kind of thunderstorms that you get in the States or anywhere in North America, they just don't happen here, really. I mean, occasionally, thunder and lightning and, and rain coming down as if it's coming down from a hose pipe or something. Um, but it was like that. 
But the weird thing is when we looked up that you could see that there was like the cloud was pretty much just over us and there was still sunshine all around in the hillsides. Um, and, and it was just weird. Now, this lasted for about five minutes. We were running for cover. Um, and then it, then it just stopped. And I said, that is so weird that that should just suddenly have happened. We After that, we went back to Bidolf Grange. And um, we actually noticed, I mean, I'd been filming the whole thing during this time. And we noticed that while I was filming Jody running for cover, this kind of ball of light sort of shot across and zoomed over the road that's opposite and over a fence. And it, it really looked, it didn't look like um, um, like um, a lens flare. It was something was happening. I showed it to an expert later who said they, it wasn't lens flare, but it could have been some electromagnetic effect because of the storm. It could have even, but I didn't notice anything at the time, and neither did Jody. It could have been a phenomenon known as ball lightning. But whatever was going on, there was an electrical storm right over this tomb for just five minutes while we were there. Anyway, that was pretty interesting. When we went back to Bidolf Grange, and it was still open, and we'd been talking to a lady there, one of the guides, about this fire in the house in 1897. And we went back and we wanted to know, Jodie wanted to know something else about it. And so she asked about the fire, she said, you know, when the fire occurred in 1897. And the lady said, oh, no, you've got it wrong there. It's 1896. And we said, no, 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 it is 1897. You've actually got it on one of your information boards there, a photograph of the place after the fire, plus the date underneath it. And Jodie went over there and suddenly stopped and stared at me. I said, what? She pointed, it now said 1896. And I thought, this is bonkers. I've known it. I've always known it's 1897. I even had a copy of one of a, a book I'd written about it years ago called The Green Stone about that included, it wasn't the whole story of Bidolf Grange, but it included Bidolf Grange in this story. And in there, I've got 1897, as I thought. But we looked through all the guidebooks in the bookshop at Bidolf Grange and they were all saying 1896. And I thought, have I got it wrong all these years? The Mandela and, effect. It's the Mandela effect. Well, yeah, the Mandela effect, where people have got a shared memory of something which is is wrong. And Jodie said, well, no, I've been doing research too. But what was weird is we started speaking to a number of other people who'd done quite in-depth research into Bidolf Grange um, to do, you know, and people who were historians at universities, and they too had all got the year 1897. And they said, we kind of all got it wrong. So we put it down in the end to, as you said, the Mandela effect. But what happened then is that something happened that's really so weird. And we didn't actually put this in the book. So I don't normally talk about this one, but it perfectly illustrates just how weird things became. We'd gone to see a house um, nearby, which didn't have anything to do with Bidolf Grange, actually. It was some other investigation we were doing. And it had been, it was a boarded up house. It was a very strange story. There were supposed to be ghosts there and everything else. And we went to have a look at it for that reason. It, um, it was, it wasn't, it was partly boarded up, but the guy who actually looked after the property could show you around. And he did. He showed us around and we filmed in there. We filmed him and talking about it and, and so on. We, he said, well, I can't show you all of it now. I want to get you into the cellars, but if you come back in a couple of weeks. So we were going back. We'd phoned him up the day before, and he said, yeah, yeah, come along, no problem, I can let you in. So we went back there to have a look at this old place, and we arrived at his doorstep, and, it, and he said, yes, hello. I said, yeah, okay, Graham and Jody, you're going to show us around. And he said, um, sorry, who are you? He didn't remember who we were. And yet we'd been there about two weeks before. And so we then, we said, look, you've shown us around this place. He said, no, it's not me. You must be thinking of somebody else. Anyway, you can't even get in there. And I, and I said, well, you know, um, and he said, well, I'll show you where it is. And we said, okay. We thought, well, he, 
maybe he's been drinking a bit too much or something, or, or been eating magic mushrooms, who knows? So we went and had a look at this house, and now it was totally boarded up, so boarded up, in fact, that there are all these metal shutters over all the windows that had all rusted all rusted up. They'd clearly been there for years. And he said, now I never took you in. You can't go inside. You can see the outside. And I said, we were inside with you. Look, and I actually had the film on my, on my phone and showed him himself showing us around. That really freaked him out. And he basically didn't hang around anyway. Oh, well, you know, you, you, you've seen the place now, so off you go off. He literally didn't know we were, but not only is it his memory that had gone, the place had changed. You could you could see there was no way that place had been opened up for years. So it was at that point we began to think, have we somehow jumped universes? Is that connected in that manner that you went, that abandoned manner, is it, how is it connected, if at all, to the um, the Grange Manor? In no way whatsoever. That's the strange thing. But as the weeks went by, we began to find out that other strange things had happened, like we'd jump universes. I mean, that's the only thing we could think of talk, you know, of, you know, like universe swaps. But we thought, well, I mean, that's just nuts. But if we had swapped universes, how come I still had this footage? Was it because I had the camera, the phone with me? But I was in the same clothes. I wasn't suddenly wearing different clothes. I jumped into another version of me, and there wasn't two of me running around. It didn't seem to make any sense. But other things happened. Like um, we, um, on one occasion, there was a pub we were going to go to an inn, uh, a, a bar that had been called the Mermaid for years, and we were going to go to this Mermaid pub. Uh, again, that was that was connected with the story. Um, we went there only to find when we got there, it was no longer called the mermaid, but the old oak. When we got inside, we said, why is this called the old oak now? When did you change the name? It's always been called the old oak. We looked online. Everything said it was called the old oak. Always had been. Never was the mermaid. But when we had this universe jump, it seemed to be a different one because we were driving to somewhere where we've eventually traced where we thought this stone was, the eye of uh, the the the, um, the heart of the rose. And we were driving over these moorlands and suddenly this fog came down. We could hardly see anything. We were in the fog for about five minutes, drove out the other side, arrived at this pub, the mermaid, now the old oak. We got inside and, and we thought, well, we were going there for some lunch. So we said, right, you know, can we have lunch? They said, well, you better hurry up. We're closing in a minute. They said, we said, I thought you stayed open until three for food. Um, you know, it's only 12 o'clock. said, no, it's five to three. What? We'd lost three hours. We couldn't account for it. I mean, there was, I mean, get as far as that, we'd never been abducted by a UFO or anything. This was somehow connected with what we were doing time jumps, universal. And it was only later when we did further research and we found more information about the me and I group, if this is exactly what they were claiming had happened to them on a few occasions. And all these various uh, gods and goddesses or, or beings that they had as statues in these shrines in the garden weren't just associated with fate, fortune, but with altering reality. So... Had, had this because, I mean, we hadn't even found the stone at this point. We hadn't done any rituals or all we'd done is go to sites that thousands of other people go to every year. Strange fate on strange planet. And it's getting stranger and stranger. Back with more of my conversation with Graham Phillips right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. We are back with Graham Phillips 
co-author of Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery, along with his uh, co-author, uh, Jody Russell. Um, so what about the disappearing people, vanishing people? Oh, no, that gets, that's another weird channel of things. Um, it's people who appear and then disappear during the course of the search. What we discovered um, in the end was that this woman called Jane Morris, who was the inspiration for Eliza Doolittle, the My Fair Lady, she had um, she'd had a friend of hers who was an artist, a woman called Evelyn de Morgan, had done a number of paintings of her. And it was in these paintings that the clues were. I won't bother going into the whole details of that. But there were clues in these paintings as to where she'd hidden this stone. We went along to one of these places. And um, while, while we were there, uh, um, I'll have to go back a little bit. We went to another place to have a look at um, something in a museum. It's connected with the whole story of the me and I group, but um, it's a bit complicated, so I won't go into it, other than to say we went to have a look at a small sword that had been found under unusual circumstances, and it was on display in this museum. Mm -hmm. Jodie and I were there. Because I'd had, uh, I was connected with the people who had found this, the sword, I was actually there and it was found, the curators and the others who worked in the museum were fascinated to talk to me. So there was, I don't know, about seven of us talking together. And we were saying, oh, it's quite interesting about the sword and how it was found. And suddenly this guy came up and told us something that I had got no idea of. And apparently nobody else who worked in the museum knew. Apparently the man who had made the sword originally was a guy that some of you may have heard of called Dr. John D, who was an yes. Elizabethan astrologer and occultist. The and inspiration for 007. Was he? Yes. Yes, oh. he was. Oh, he was. Yes, he was. He was one of the, the first spy for, for, for in the English Secret Service. And those, the 007 is a pair of spectacles, a pair of glasses, meaning for your eyes only. And that's what he was saying. Oh, would say. really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, but he, yeah, he was in the English Secret Service when he first got going. He was spying on Catholics for the Protestant regime of Queen Elizabeth. That's right. Well, I never. Thanks for telling me that one. <laughs> anyway, going back to him, 007, mm -hmm. John D, had founded, uh, had, had made this sword. Suddenly, this little old man, I mean, he really looked old. I mean, I'm old, but this guy was old. Um, or had this a scruffy black suit, um, kind of reminded me sort of of an old Columbo, you know, remember mm. Columbo? Oh, yes, like a favorite. <laughs> and he was, he was like this. And he sort of came over and he was, although he spoke in an English accent, he said, oh, of course, this, this is where John D. lived, isn't it? We said, is it? In this, it turned out that he did actually live in this museum where the sword had completely ended up by chance. It wasn't there because he had lived there. In fact, the people who ran the museum didn't even know he had anything to do with the place. Anyway, so that was weird. He told us about this. And then I said to him, well, uh, tell us some more. What else do you know? And he just sort of wandered off into the next gallery. And I sort of went after him saying, excuse me, can you tell me? And he'd gone. He wasn't there. And the fact there was no other way out of that gallery. And us, plus the other people who were all there, who all saw him, were kind of searching around for ages, trying to figure out where he'd gone. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, Jody and I are looking at this painting that's got some of these clues in as to where the heart of the rose is hidden. We go there, we look at the painting, suddenly this little old man's there again. Oh, yes, do you know that painting was painted by... And he tells us something that's essential for us to know to do with the search. And I'm saying, hey, hold on a minute, you're that. And he wanders off again, goes into a crowd of people that are being shown around by a guide and vanishes. I follow him. You know, we can't find him anywhere. Um, Jody and I both saw him. Other people there um, were too busy listening to a guide to actually say that they saw him, but nobody took tell where he went. He went into a room that there seemingly was no way out of except for the way in, and he had vanished again. So 
occasion, there's not just him, there's a few others as well. People who appeared out of nowhere, told us something, then we suddenly think, oh my, who the heck are they? We follow them and they vanish. Who are these people? I mean, uh, is it something to do with the, you know, some fate itself, bringing people from other universes to help us out, then sending them back again? In which case, how do they know what they've got to tell us? I mean, the whole thing is so mysterious, we can't really answer these questions. It all it reminds me of the Rowan Atkinson character in uh, Love Actually, who I don't know if you've seen the movie or um, anyway, he just suddenly appears and he he's, he's like steering the hand of fate, I guess, if you will. And then he disappears and then he comes back at another appropriate time. Anyway, it's uh, uh, so let me ask you, um, you, you talk about that you were in a, a race against time to locate the heart of the stone. What do you mean by that? Why would time was running out? Running out yeah, of well, basically, I mean, again, it's quite a long story, but I'll tell a very, very short version of it. We had to find it by the exact 150th anniversary. What do you call the anniversary of somebody's death? Their death day, not birthday. Anyway, it had to be exactly, we had to find it by 150 years to the day after Mary Heath, yes. the girl who found it, had died. And that was the 13th of October last year, 2022. Um, so that's what the race against time of. We, we pretty much were, we weren't actually top. Jody kept getting a lot of sort of strange dreams or visions that said that if, if we would continue to get help in by people appearing and disappearing and other universe jumps or whatever to help find this stone, but after the date, and don't ask me why, after sundown on the day that Mary Heath had died, 150 years after, if we hadn't found it, all of this stuff would stop and we wouldn't get any more help and there's no way we would find it. So that's the kind of race against time. It wasn't there was people after us with hatchets or something. You know, <laughs> It was basically that. Um, and so in the end, we discovered, by solving all these clues, that they all led to a cave, which um, is in the moorlands, not far from Bidolf Grange. And it's a cave which is associated with the legend of King Arthur. Um, the knight, Gawain, is supposed to have met there with Morgana, the very character whose tomb it was that where this Heart of the Rose was discovered, the, the figure that is supposed to have had this Heart of the Rose. And um, Gawain sees her in a vi oh, vision or he sees her appearing with wings in front of him like an angel almost. And then he gets whatever wishes after in, in the story of King Arthur. One of these pre-Raphaelite painters who was involved in the story of Mianiah, he painted a picture of this event, Gawain with this angel-like figure who's Morgana in a cave. And the actual cave where he painted this picture is known as Wetton Mill in the Peak District of Staffordshire, north of where Bidolf is. And um, we, so we went there. Um, it, it's known locally as being the place where the story was set. Um, and that's why this guy painted it there. When we got there, we thought, how, how on earth are we going to find, you know, at this stone here? You know, where is it going to be? In a cave, it could be anywhere. The cave itself was a pretty big cavern. And there's a great big hole in the roof, I don't know, about 40 feet across, where obviously at some point in Bath, the the, the the roof had collapsed, the cavern roof had collapsed. And we were looking around. We were suddenly, our attention was drawn to one area of the cave where there was this kind of V-shaped um, recess that kind of went all the way up to the roof or where this opening was. And we, there was like this buzzing sound, like bees coming from it. We couldn't figure it out. Anyway, suddenly the rain started again and it had been sunshine outside, just like it was when we started this quest and the rain poured down and within seconds. It was literally pouring in through the roof, like in in small little waterfalls or cascades coming down. The lightning started. The wind was howling about outside. And then in, when the lightning went, it, it did appear that on the wall behind where this one cascade of water was, it was obviously created by the shadows of the trees that are above around this opening and the rocks and that. 
It looked for all the world like there was an angel standing there, like somebody with big wings, like in this painting. And then it went and within a few minutes, the rain stopped and it dried out and well, it didn't dry out, but you know, we, we weren't getting soaked anymore. Um, and within a few minutes, the, the water had, 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 had run away on the floor. And we looked down, I think Jody noticed it first, lying on the floor was this stone, this small stone in the shape of a heart, pink, later we discovered made of pink, uh, of rose quartz. And it was exactly the size and shape of what the heart of the rose had looked like. And we realized that what had happened is this, it, somebody at some point in the past had fitted it into the crevice, this crevice right high up in the in the side of the cave. And unless you knew what you were looking for, a, an abseil down from the top or had a proper big ladder or something, you'd never have gone up there and looked for it. But the rain had coincidentally washed this thing down and it literally landed at our feet. So that is how we found what some people have said, oh, well, it's probably something just left there by a visitor. You know, it's an offering by a new ager. Well, it's a bit strange that it was exactly what we were looking for at exactly the right time and the way it just appeared. So what did you do with it? Well, we took it to the actual land, the people who owned the land. We took it to them that were, you know, part of the, the this National Trust setup. So it's big setup. They said that they weren't interested in it. It wasn't worth anything. It was just rose quartz. There was no way of, of you know, it wasn't expensive or anything like that. They said that um, the way we found it, well, it's probably just been left there by somebody. You may as well keep it. We had it examined by a good few people who, who were interested in perhaps its uh, mystical significance. Nothing happened to them. And since that time to now, nothing's happened to us either. So don't ask me what it was all about. It makes an interesting story. And, it's a, and I, it, it shows that somehow weird things can happen far weirder than anyone would normally imagine. But what it was all for, well, perhaps we've got to wait for the next thing to happen before we find that out. Well, keep us posted. Maybe you should take it to, to the resting place of Mary Heath. We, ah, that's another story. Her, her resting place vanished. Her resting place vanished. Her entire resting place wasn't there. Then it came. Then it went. <laughs> That's sounds another like, story. Can yeah, it sounds like volume two of Strange Fate. <laughs> I have a, a sneaking suspicion, uh, Graham, that this story is not over yet. But well, it was great. The heart of the race is in America at the moment. Jody's got it. It's in L.A. of all places. The city of angels. Wonderful. Wonderful. How do we get a copy of Strange Fate? Well, it's available on Amazon. Um, Jody and I published this one ourselves. I didn't go to my normal publisher because we wanted to get it out quick and they'd have taken longer. So it's just available on Amazon. But any Amazon UK, uh, Amazon.com America, you'll find it. Strange Fate by Graham Phillips and Jody Russell. Fantastic. What an incredible story. Graham, great to uh, finally connect with you. And uh, I'm so delighted that we could spend some time together. Thank you for this. Thank you. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.